Welcome to Let Me Know How It Is, a pop culture podcast about animation, TV, movies, comics, and more. Today we're hopping into the world of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so get ready for a nostalgia-filled exploration of animated mischief and noir-inspired shenanigans. I'm Clifton. I'm Frank Melman. And I'm Zach Slater. And today we're also joined by a longtime friend of our show, Devon Sanders. Say hello, Devon. Hello, Devon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, glad you could be here. Thank you. What happens when a celebrity cartoon rabbit is wanted for murder and he has to seek the help of a washed-up, drunk detective who is none too fond of tunes? That's what we find out in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the 1988 touchstone picture film that blends live action with animation and pays tribute and homage to classic Hollywood cartoons and old-school detective noir films. Released on June 22, 1988, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is directed by Robert Zemeckis, along with the help of animation director Richard Williams. The screenplay is written by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, adapted from the novel titled Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolf, and with music composed by Alan Silvestri. The movie stars Bob Hoskins as Eddie Valiant, Charles Fleischer as Roger Rabbit, Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom, Joanna Cassidy as Dolores, and an uncredited Kathleen Turner as Jessica Rabbit. When talking about these older movies, we often like to find out when we first saw them. This wasn't the first time watching the movie for any of you, right? No. Oh. Nope, not my first time. So let's go around real quick and say when you first saw it, and uh, if you can remember, and, and uh, what you thought about it at that point in time. Uh, yeah, I saw it in uh, the movie theaters. Um uh, it was a summer movie. Uh, this one was kind of special for us because it was like a whole family deal. Uh, so like my mom and my dad <laughs> took us and, and mm-hmm. you know, and there was, you know, I can, I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've been to a movie with both of them. Okay. <laughs> you know? Um, right. and so it was, it was like us and you know, like my brother came and, and you know, my cousin obviously, um, you know, who came and stayed with us the whole summer and stuff like that. So this was a big deal. Um, for us and this is one of those deals like I didn't know what I was going into it was just mm. like we're going to the movies and it was like alright like I was five <laughs> you know jeez so, yeah. okay yeah <laughs> jeez okay I remember just seeing it um I had friends who worked at the movie theater so basically the, around that time uh movies were free so I could basically see <laughs> okay. whatever I wanted well, so you were, wanna... you were not five years old no no I was not <laughs> okay. I was far from it so um yeah i was able to see this that summer it was you know it's, it was it turned out being you know a huge movie but i remember seeing it and being excited about the fact that you was going to have a you know it was almost a crisis <laughs> event because you had characters that would never ever interact right like the level of crossover that was happening yeah, right right for sure mind-boggling at the time yeah that was the thing that i remember most was at that time it was just unheard of that those characters would you know be mentioned the same breath must much less be on screen together. Right. Yeah. That certainly was a big deal. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a big, huge part of the movie. And Devon, when did you first see it? I saw it in the movie theater, uh, probably the first week that it came out. And I am 
sitting here shocked that <laughs> it has been 35 years that this movie yes, yes. is being out. Uh, because I'm pretty sure we all watched it again for the podcast. Mm-hmm. When I see, for some reason, I have this movie set in like the early 90s. Right. Yeah. So it just kind of continued to surprise me as I, uh, as, uh, I watched it. Got it. And now I'm realizing, oh my God, I was literally in high school when this came out. <laughs> yeah, but in the pre-show, we had to reveal it was 35 years to Devon and we're all that much closer to death. That was the somber realization we came mm-hmm. to in the pre-show for this. Mm. Uh, mine, I saw it in the theater as well. I also was not five. I was older than five. Um, <laughs> I wasn't that young, but I was still young enough that I did not get like a lot of stuff in this movie. I'm sure mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. at the time, especially in rewatching where I was like, man, like I was a kid and I watched this movie all the time. Like, yeah. like all this stuff flew over my head at that point in time. <laughs> and, and a lot of that will come up as we, as we go on. So, right. but yeah, I do remember it being like the big summer movie that year i do remember it being like a thing for all the whole family which is uh, a little odd (laughs) in (laughs) retrospect but it it was but i and you know answering or talking to that i think it's one of those things where a lot of people just at that that time especially was still the idea of well it's animation so it's for kids right yeah yeah. and as you said it's it's one of those that no looking back (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of stuff in it that's not for kids yeah it's like jessica's for daddy (laughs) (laughs) i'll add to it too that maybe maybe a little different from from now that Mm -hmm. like you know that those cartoon characters were on tv all the time yeah many many of them all the time for us like Mm -hmm. you know it like bugs bunny was was far more prevalent in our lives, I think than maybe he is in kids' lives now. For sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a thing that was, yeah. I mean, there's definitely stuff for us to latch onto and gravitate to in it. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's just get into the movie. I'm going to read some summaries and excerpts and then we'll talk about it. So, uh, opening in the movie, the first thing we see is an animated short featuring Roger Rabbit and baby Herman. When a director yells cut, the animated short segues to a behind-the-scenes angle where we see it is being filmed on a soundstage studio in the real-life world. There's a man watching the filming from the shadows who expresses his distaste for tunes before taking a swig from a bottle. <laughs> that man is Eddie Valiant, and we find out we're in 1947 Hollywood, where Eddie is being hired by animation producer R.K. Maroon to find proof that his cartoon star Roger Rabbit's wife is cheating on Roger. Reluctantly, Eddie takes the case and heads to the Ink and Paint Club where Jessica Rabbit sings. He witnesses her playing patty cake in her dressing room with Marvin Acme (laughs) and then shows the photographs to R.K. Maroon and Roger Rabbit. Roger doesn't take the news well and storms off into the night, vowing that he and Jessica will rise above it and will be happy again. So the opening there introduces us to the world and most of the major players in the film. Um... What's the big standout to you from the opening? I think the opening's brilliant. I love it. I, I, <laughs> yeah. Like watching it again, I think, um, you know, again, like I said, like, you know, we, we were watching theatrically made cartoons on TV all the time. So I, so we knew the language of, of your Bugs Bunny cartoons, your Tom and Jerry's, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it feels like one of those very, very close, like as close, I think, as you can do it uh, in 1988, 
with right. just a much bigger budget and and you see it in flourishes where like i think the camera is a little bit more like dynamic than you would <laughs> yeah. ever see it moving it's more sophisticated than an actual uh 1947 cartoon short but uh yeah but it still gets the feel and the vibe of it right enough to sell it yeah exactly and then and then for me like the real moment of brilliance is the cut and then you pull back and you see like it's a real set yeah right, <laughs> and then right. you see the cartoon <laughs> Characters come off and, and, and it's like, they're shot like movies. And I think that that's like the real clever bit. And then on top of it, like you get to see the baby, uh, (laughs) have a gruff, uh, you know, chain smoking two pack a day voice, uh, that I think really, really sets you in with like, this is the tone for the movie, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like the fact that it opened as an animated short it's a throwback to the films that did have the animated shorts back then in the forties, the time period we're set in. And and yeah, it just, it just really like with that segue tells you, this is your movie. It made me think Zach of what's the, what's the, the Warner brothers short, the one with the sheepdog, they basically go to work, they clock in and then they basically have to, you know, he's fending off. Is it Wiley coyote? Is that the one I'm thinking of? Ralph and Sam, oh, Ralph is but okay. Wiley Coyote's got a yeah. red nose in those cartoons. That's the difference. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it reminds me kind of that bit of like, we're going to clock in, we're going to do our job and then we're going to clock out and we're totally, you know, go home and this is no longer a thing. I think it's, it, to me, it reminded me of that as an extension of the idea of, yeah, they're making the cartoon quote unquote, <laughs> and then they're going to go about their lives when that day of the, that part of their day is over. So I love that open. I think the open's really great. Yeah. It's very much like kind of, an amalgam i think of the the shorts of that period because you've got like a you've got the rabbit character so of course it's hearkening to like a bugs bunny it feels a lot like a tom and jerry um, mm-hmm. just the situation of it like the babysitter and the the being imperiled like those gags just felt very tom and jerry to me yeah yeah now, the thing that really stuck out for me was just realizing kind of how unhinged the, the cartoons we used to watch were <laughs> yeah you know it's yeah. like is the baby in peril? Oh my God. Now the baby's on the uh, stove. Oh my God. Now the, <laughs> now the burner is on. And now like Roger's like being besieged by right. a bunch of like uh butcher knives. Yeah. There's knives flying like, everywhere. Ah. Yeah. Seriously. And we watched that, and, you know, we're falling. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we grew up on, we all grew up on that stuff. Yeah. Yes. Dynamite is a cigarette. It was all fine. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I, I like the dual purpose of it though too, like you said, where it's a throwback and all of in a homage to to the way like movies were in the forties and fifties and stuff like that. But I also like that it sort of echoes to that that was the business then mm-hmm. too. Like mm-hmm. like like you know, Roger is a character akin to those kind of like like he was he was a working actor during those days and this is what they made were those cartoons. And in that world I think you know, I I, I just think it's a beautiful parallel. I just think it does a lot in God, I don't know. I, I haven't timed it, but like, what is that? Three minutes? It can't, yeah, it's yeah, got to be about that. much. Yeah. yeah. So it's shorter than a typical cartoon. Like, right. Well, they did have to cut it because he, he missed his gag. He right. had mm-hmm. the birds instead of stars, so they didn't get to finish it. At one point, the, um, the director, Raul, <laughs> who calls cut, is uh, played by real-life prolific producer Joel Silver. It was yes. known for producing Lethal Weapon, The Matrix, Veronica Mars, and literally a hundred more yeah. <laughs> other shows and movies. So I thought that was a fun thing because he wasn't that far into his producing career, I don't think, um, in the by that point in the eighties. I guess he'd been going probably maybe ten years, but he certainly has produced a lot more after that. So mm-hmm. that was that was a fun 
live action cameo in a film that we'll get to has a ton of animated cameos. And what do you all think of Eddie Valiant's introduction? The man loves the drink is what we've <laughs> learned from his first couple scenes. Yeah, he's he's on the sauce and okay with it for sure. <laughs> yep. No, I I like the fact that they don't, you know, they don't shy away from the fact that it's very much um an homage while at the same time being a little more exaggerated like a cartoon about how much he drinks <laughs> right right off the bat because it's not you know i mean he's got that thing of like looking like his he he's about to be paid in the office and he's he's concerned about getting a drink yeah he's right. not that, that drink set on the table yeah mm-hmm. that's what that's his it's main you know main main impetus there no i like i you know i mean i have not watched clearly as many um noir things as, as zach has but mm-hmm. i was curious looking back now that you have watched so many do you look at Eddie uh, Eddie differently than you have before? I like him a lot more now okay. than I did as a kid. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I can get. I'll get into that a little bit more later. I think. Yeah. I mean, it surprised me how front and center the drinking was okay. in this, and it didn't. It. You know what I mean? Which I remember. I remember. Like I remember gags of it. Like mm-hmm. you know, like uh, the liquor store guy. He knew. Yeah, that's a great. Know? That's a great line. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah, that yeah. game for sure. Terrific. He knew where to find you. Well, well. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. But I also like. But at the same time, I was a little shocked at like how much it was. The, the other thing that that floored me, close to his introduction, was like the kid smoking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. blew me away. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, yeah. He, when he hops the trolley with the children. Yeah. 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 Fun, fun tidbit that uh, it was, it's interesting to me that how many times lucky strike, cause that's the brand. And the only mm-hmm. reason I know that is fun fact. And I think I mentioned this before in the podcast, that was my grandmother's brand. Oh, <laughs> oh really? Oh yeah. Growing up. That was, that was, that was grandma. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what she needed was some lucky strike. So when I saw that, I was like, Oh wow, I know that. And then later on in later on in, in the movie, there's a lot of, I don't know, maybe Lucky Strike, I don't know if Lucky Strike was still a thing. I guess it had to have been, but there was a lot of Lucky Strike, like tin signs throughout okay. the movie, <laughs> just to get to give sponsor. it, to give it the proper, yeah, to right. give it its proper space. I don't know. Yeah. But again, I mean, I think on the subject of drinking and smoking in there too, I mean, again, like, I mean, that's what you saw in those cartoons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. True. At the time. I mean, like I could think of a, of a bunch of like, Warner Brothers cartoons were like the, the the stork is drunk and like <laughs> and like can't, and like can't get into his apartment. You know, right. he's just like you know drooling drunk. Any character that has the hiccups is drunk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of cigar gags too. Lots. So I mean, mm-hmm. so I mean, not, not not that they were making that stuff in that in that time for kids, mm-hmm. but they certainly didn't have any problem showing kids that stuff. Right. You know. Right. And this was probably like. The, the cartoons we were seeing, even the old ones from the 40s that were still running when we were kids in the 80s, probably were the pre-censored versions. They probably hadn't started purging that stuff from them yet. So yeah, we were the no. ones who were seeing them on TV with all of mm-hmm. those, with all of those gags in their entirety. So, I mean, yeah, the movie wouldn't have been that much different at the time from just what was out there for animation. No, I mean, by that time, I think the, the censored 11 were the only ones that were moved. Okay. From from rotation, just you know, for obvious reasons. Were those like were, the really racist ones? They were the really, really <laughs> racist yeah. ones that were all pulled and okay. and um you know, but yeah, I mean later on there would be like scenes removed or other ones pulled, you know. Um one of my favorite Looney Tunes cartoons is one called Racketeer Rabbit, and it's the one where Bugs Bunny goes against Rocky, but right. it's before 
Rocky the way you think of him, where he's short with the tall hat. It's Rocky yeah. as Edward G. Robinson. Mm-hmm. Okay. When he's doing that, I'm like, meh, meh, meh. <laughs> say, right, like, right. You know, and um, and it's like removed because there's like Tommy guns in it. Right. <laughs> okay. You know? Yeah. And so that was when I remember watching that a ton of times as a kid. And then like nowadays, yeah. it's it's nowhere. Nowhere. Right. It's on yeah. YouTube only. Right. I remember seeing that one all the time. You know what's funny to me, though, is when there's a scene when Eddie goes into Toontown for the first mm-hmm. time. And you actually do see, like, one of the bears from the Song of the South in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And you also see the Tar Baby. Okay. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No way you'd see those things nowadays. No. <laughs> no, no. No. Yeah, some of the stuff I missed out on wasn't just the suggestive stuff, but, like, in, in the, the trolley scene after Eddie hops the trolley with the children and helps another child like hop on the back with them, which I thought was a really nice bit. Yeah. And and they're like, mister, don't you have a car? <laughs> and his reply of who needs a car in LA when we've got yeah. the best public transportation system in the world. That is right. one. Like I didn't get that until like much, much, I mean, adult life. Cause <laughs> I, I didn't live in LA. I've, I've only visited, but yeah, like that's, that's a, that's a different fantasy world. LA <laughs> yes. than, than there is now. Yes. Or even was in the eighties. And that's the gag. Yeah, so uh, Eddie's been hired by R.K. Maroon, Roger Rabbit's studio boss, to find evidence that Jessica's cheating on him. She sings at the Ink and Paint Club, so that's where he goes to find evidence. Um, the Ink and Paint Club was like, for me, it was probably the most memorable sequence in the in the opening of the film, for sure. I remember, obviously, that's the point. Like when I, I had, because you know, you're playing the game of like, well, who's who's in this? As Devon mentioned, you know, you see. The, the song of the south bear <laughs> and and I, you do see it's funny because I, I don't remember this from the like when i watched it before but there's a moment where you see bugs bunny in the background early on too that i didn't catch okay. at all since i've watched it mm. but in this is like the first moment where you're like oh wow this is gonna be you know there's daffy duck and donald duck and they're dueling pianos right yeah <laughs> yeah you know and it's still to this day i'm like that's you know that's great because mm. again those 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 opportunities to see those characters interact was, you know, forbidden <laughs> for so you know for so long because right, there was right. such a you know a weird kind of competition slash you know basically trying to outdo each other for so long mm-hmm. to see them together in that scene and the scene works and it's great and they're in character and you get just enough you know of each of their little bits and and you know catchphrases and things that they don't you know. You can't understand Donald, <laughs> you know, he's de- Donald is despicable, you know, you get a little <laughs> bit of devil Donald in it as well, right. which is yeah. great, you yeah. know, sort of runs the gamut for the two of them in that little scene. It, it works really well of, you know, also the fact that it, the payoff to the joke is they never finish the act. <laughs> right. <laughs> this happens every night. <laughs> yeah. This is how it is every single night. So, but yeah, that's just the thing that there's a place. And again, we get that like in comics every now and then you'll have that. Um, I think we've talked about it before the. Uh, Clark's the hero bar where sort of like every hero in the multiverse goes. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like has a little bit of that kind of feel, at least for me. Right. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, you know, there's a bar somewhere where Wolverine and Clark Kent <laughs> could possibly have a drink together and it just not, not turn into a, oh, we got to go save the world kind of situation. Right. So right. I always love that about that scene right from the beginning. Yeah. Is this the Betty Boop bit too? Yes. Mm-hmm. Betty Boop there too? Yeah, well. that's, that's yeah. a cool one. That's a cool cameo. Yeah. yeah, and I think with that cameo, like it does serve a good story purpose too, because so far we've seen Eddie Valiant gripe 
about tunes. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times in this movie <laughs> so far and take a drink, gripe mm-hmm. about tunes and take a drink. And yeah. like every time, every place he sees them doing tune things, he just grumbles. And then he sees Betty Boop, who he apparently has some history with mm-hmm. and shows her kindness. Like when it's a tune he that he knows yeah. and yeah. has history with, like, he's not, he's not grumpy. He's not mean. He just, he shows her kindness and says yeah. like, yeah, you still got it. Yeah. yeah, he saw. I like the fact that he softens a bit in that moment, and then yeah. yeah, it goes back to being Eddie. And I think it is the first place that in the movie that hints that oh, like this guy, like this this prejudice he has against tunes isn't quite what it seems. There's <laughs> right. something. There's something to it. There's something else there. I I also read it a little bit like he's in the cartoon girls <laughs> a yeah. little bit. You know, yeah, <laughs> I read it a little bit like that's that. his type. Yeah, that could be it too. <laughs> right for sure. Yeah, that could be some of that. Because there's clearly like like an attraction to to Jessica, right? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, down the line. Yeah. So it just hits me. I'm like, oh, like it's not just her. Like like it's like like it's cartoons too. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, right? Yeah, the Jessica Rabbit reveal. Because again, I saw it so young. I don't know like what my expectations were watching the movie the first time. I can't remember because. His expectation is certainly that she's a rabbit <laughs> because because <laughs> yeah. when Betty Boop says that Marvin Acme's that never misses a show and he says, oh, he's got to think for rabbits, huh? And then he sees her and she's not a rabbit. And that's when his jaw, you know, drops and Betty Boop has to put it back up <laughs> yeah, at one point. That's a good which bit is, too. Which are, I mean, so many great gags uh, in this scene and throughout. But yeah, that's, that's the thing is I just don't remember that reveal. Like, I mean, would the audience have thought, oh yeah, like he must be married to another rabbit, not this knockout bombshell. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was like a fun, you know, flipping expectations reveal, I assume. Although I just, I've always known her to be Jessica Rabbit. So Well, it's again, it's one of those things where it it shifts gears. I think the, 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 the movie shifts gears in animation, the idea that we've had like, oh, there's Disney and there's Warner Brothers and then all of a sudden. We're into the world of Tex Avery. <laughs> right. We just yeah. crossed the line over into into stuff that's a little racier. Yeah, yeah. Than than what we're used to. I mean, this is not Bugs Bunny and drag. This is, <laughs> you know, this is this is oh wow, yeah. this is a Tex this is a Tex Avery girl. This is which right. is, yeah, this is Red Hot Riding Hood, right? Yes. Yeah, no, very much inspired by Red Hot Riding. Yeah, Hood. very much so that it changes you know, it changes gears, and you're like, oh, um, I know. Remember, I remember. I kept I kept thinking back to the trailer for this and the trailer for it. I don't know if it's the one that's actually on uh, the Disney Plus, the, the extras. Right. The one that I remember I always had the line about I'm not drawn. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Mm. OK, yeah. So you're kind of like there was kind of a little lean into it early on, but I don't think anyone was quite ready for that scene when she actually comes out and does her number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, again, I, I think, again, if that's a thing, a scene of like, oh, let's take the kids and put them in the station wagon and go see this cartoon. <laughs> You know, you're going to get a lot of reactions from different <laughs> audience members on, you know, depending where they are in their lives and who they are. Right. right. Yeah. It is surprising to me, thinking about that moment, that the wolf from Red Hot Riding Hood is nowhere uh, in nowhere right. in that bar. Right. There's not not doing the um the the Jim Carrey mask. Yeah. Like wolf Hal. Gang. At least that I could see. I mean, I don't know. Right. I mean, maybe he's in the background someplace, but I mean, you certainly can't hear him. Right. Well, right. like the, I mean, the the gist of this place though was that it was humans only as clientele, mm. and tunes worked there because that's what that's what Maroon tells them. Like it's a humans only establishment. That also that also that aspect of it, at watching it now, you know, made me my arp, you know, made my eyebrow arc. The idea of like, wait, wait, wait a minute, <laughs> is this a 
again, as you said, does Eddie have a thing for cartoon girls? Is this some kind of weird fetish bar? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> we were just not calling it that because, right. you know, again, you know, it's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's, it's Touchdown or Disney or whatever it was called at the time. Yeah. Um, and the idea being like, no, if you want to go see some, you know, you want to see some freaky stuff? Let's go to the, let's go to the, the Ink and Paint Club. <laughs> right. check, check out what's going on over there. Yeah. Yeah. Something a little more exotic. That was, right, it right. was, I never, again, oh. I never remembered that bit about it ever when I was, when I, I thought it was just a place where they interacted, not like, yeah, yeah they're, everyone, they're there to perform and you're there to enjoy yourself as a human. You know, it, it kind of reminds me, like, as you were talking, I was like, oh my God, that would basically be like the Cotton Club album. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. much so. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what, I, that was the feeling I also got too, is like, well, yeah, again, quote unquote, let's go, let's, 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 you know, go across the tracks or wherever the club yeah. is going to be and, and see something we wouldn't normally see. Right. Yeah. That's what it felt. I mean, again, which is, you know, something that happened, you know, at the time, but it's also, I never considered that, that until I watched it this time to be like, oh wow, that's what this is. I mean, that's certainly <laughs> what Marvin Acme is there for. True. Right. <laughs> oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember R.K. Maroon referred to it as a tune review. That's all I remember him calling it. So it's probably, it sounds a little suggestive, yes. a little burlesque. Mm-hmm. So then we get um, Eddie sees Jessica playing patty cake <laughs> with Marvin Acme when he's spying on her in her dressing room and takes photos back to Roger and shows her that it. It is actually really just patty cake. Like yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it seems so much more suggestive than it was, but that is enough uh, for Roger. And the gag I like at this part was when he shows Roger all the pictures and Roger starts flipping through yeah. them quickly yeah. and you get the flip book effect. I love that gag. That's a That's great one bit. Of my favorite gags of that scene. Yeah. I didn't remember the sound effects in the patty cake scene. That's okay. what, that surprised me this time around. Mm, right. is, that, is that you know the, the reveal comes and it's harmless but like in the moment i i got to imagine oh, yeah. there's some parents in the theater going like what like <laughs> this is like this is seven minutes right seven eight right. minutes in you're like what is this yeah right. yeah i mean they, they definitely imply it they yeah. definitely imply yeah i just imagine, imagine a lot of like hands going over ears and eyes yeah. in theaters <laughs> at that moment of like what is this what what is this patty cake business yeah, <laughs> yeah. so after after the reveal to Roger, Roger doesn't take it well, you know, storms off uh, in a huff and then cries in the street by himself. Uh, Eddie goes home and we get to see Eddie's office. And that's where we get like the Eddie Valiant kind of backstory. Yeah. Yeah. Where we see um, he had developed photographs because he had borrowed the camera from Dolores, his love interest at the bar. And she said there was some old film from a trip of theirs. And we see those photographs and we see his brother. Mm hmm. Because also, we didn't mention this yet, but when he goes to Dolores' bar earlier and he gets harassed by one of the other patrons, we learn this. Wait a minute, wait a minute, I know. You're working for little Bo Peep. She's lost a sheep and you're going to help her find him. <laughs> Get this straight, mean balls. I don't work for tones. <laughs> So what's his problem? Toon killed his brother. What? Huh? Dropped the piano on his head. And so now we see like, oh, that's where, that's where his hostility towards tunes comes from. And I just think there was a lot of interesting stuff. Again, I missed, you know, in earlier viewings and in the scene where we see him and his brother and Dolores at Catalina Island. And then we see, 
his brother remembered through newspaper clippings and ultimately like the empty dust covered desk. But we find out that they used to be like the cartoon, like the tune detectives. Yeah. Because you mm-hmm. see that like they grew up in the circus. If you mm-hmm. notice those photos where their right. father was a clown, which is all just depicted in, in a series of photos with no explanation, no other exposition besides just looking at, at photographs and newspaper clippings, which I, I thought was a really cool way to get across a lot of information mm-hmm. very quickly. Yep. Uh, because yeah, you see him and his brother dressed as clowns and then you see them as cops dressed as clowns <laughs> and then they see them opening their own detective and like th- what are the cases that that they had solved from the headlines oh, one of those floors me every time the the goofy cleared of spy charges <laughs> yeah oh man right. i love that one and the yeah. other was a nephew kidnapping case right. huey dewey or louie yeah yes had a Lindbergh had a very Lindbergh's baby yeah. type feel to the story <laughs> right <laughs> which i'd love to see those stories i'd love to yeah. see those happen sometime oh yeah but yeah, so moving on from that, Eddie Valiant next is woken up with an empty bottle in his hand in his office by a police lieutenant who tells him Marvin Acme has been murdered and that Roger Rabbit is the prime suspect. They go to the scene of the crime at the Acme warehouse and we meet Judge Doom, an iron-fisted lawman who has jurisdiction over Toontown and Acme warehouse. Back at Valiant's office, Baby Herman is there waiting to tell him that Roger Rabbit is innocent and that the newspaper was wrong when it said Acme didn't leave a will. Eddie brushes it off at first until he sees a will in Acme's pocket in the patty cake photos that he had taken. He finds Roger Rabbit hiding out in his bed. Roger asks for his help and says he doesn't believe Jessica meant to hurt him, and he even went to her dressing room to find her and make up. But she wasn't there, so he wrote her a love poem on a piece of paper and keeps it to read to her when he finds her later. After getting handcuffed together, Eddie reluctantly helps Roger and takes him to Dolores' bar to lay low. So that's our setup of our main conflict. Acme's murdered, and Roger is the fall guy. Standard noir fare. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my questions to Zach kind of throughout this as our our noir expert is. Like, what tropes is this hitting, and, and how is it hitting the beats of a noir as we go? Um, there's a few, and then there's a few that I think also hit what people think of as noir. Right. That's the, that's the funny thing. Now, I, I, I watch noir a lot. I have not seen all of them, obviously, but I've seen, <laughs> I've seen a lot of them. And, and among them that I've seen, I've seen the ones that typically have, have made it into like iconic, uh, you know, best of all time, uh, status. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of them. So one of the things that struck me a little bit is, is right at the beginning in the credits, you get if I would if, if I would just say to everybody like, hey, like picture like imagine noir music in your head. Right. Mm-hmm. It would all probably everybody would probably think something that kind of is low saxophony, like, mur, mur, right. you know, like, <laughs> right. And that was a thing that hit me like right away. I'm like, where does that come from? Because that's typically not in noir movies, right? Like, if you watch a lot of noir movies from the classic period of, of, you know, 40s and 50s, a lot of it was, like, orchestral stuff. And that was one thing. Honestly, truly, I'm not bringing this up for for listeners' bingo cards. It was one of the things, honestly, I wanted to ask Frank, like, is that a moonlighting thing? (laughs) The music? Yeah. No. What's funny to me is that when you... When I... I'm watching the movie, and again, I don't. I, I've seen it bits and pieces since I watched it originally, and I had that moment of like, 
did Alan Silvestri score this? Mm-hmm. Because it's it there are there are moments like like when Clifton mentions the fact that Eddie has the the magnifying glass and sees the last will and testament in the newspaper. Right. There's a musical. It's not a sting. I'm not sure what the proper term is for it, but there's a little okay, like right. kind of like, and that Alan Silvestri does that. And the reason I know he does that is because uh, he worked with Bob Zemeckis on Back to the Future. Right. And there's that little you know when things happen in Back to the Future throughout the entire series. There's that little there's little of, <laughs> right. of like this just happened or time travel or you know whatever right. to give yeah. you the to give you a, a cue yeah and I realized oh it's it's a Zemeckis but also it's one of those things that when we we also I don't know if everyone else watched it was that was the extra thing on Disney Plus about the the making of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they talk about Alan Silvestri and Alan Silvestri or Bob Zemeckis says that Alan Silvestri had a tough job of trying to meld together <laughs> you know piecemeal both um, kind of that jazzy kind of 40s, you know, music along with cartoon music and try right, to find right. an intersection piece. But again, I did find myself often, and this goes back to, again, when we go back to like composers and people that we like, you know, composing music for movies with Danny Elfman and Batman and Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of, of overlap between, uh, and I never would have gotten this before watching this movie um, for this podcast, that Alan Silvestri has a lot of the same type of music, like, um, tricks that he uses here that he also uses in back to the future. I okay, love the back right. to the future score. Like right. yeah, I, 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 I could love it. It's one of my favorites, but I never realized how much like this one mirrors or has bits and pieces in it as well. Okay. Right. So that that's one thing in there for me that like, and, and that's the moment where I realize I'm like, I don't know where this, what we think of as noir, noir music actually comes from, like what it's mm-hmm. actually referencing because right, right. a lot of the really well-known noirs, it does, it's not a part of it. Now, I mean, now researching it, one very famous noir that I've not seen yet that I'm embarrassed to say is a French one called Elevator to the Gallows, Mm -hmm. right? And Miles Davis did the soundtrack to this movie. So my sense is possibly there. That may be where, where it's, where it originates. Um, but so anyway, so, um, so that's, that's one thought. The private eye is another aspect that can kind of go either way. It's certainly a thing that people think about a lot in noir, and it's there, mm-hmm. but it may be not there as prevalently as we all think it is. I mean, there's some famous ones that follow PI characters, right? right. But no. there are some too that follow, like you know, he's like an insurance salesman, and he's <laughs> right. the key aspect of it that makes him noir a noir character is that you get a, a strong sense of history mm-hmm. that that there's something about this character that's broken. Yeah. That, that his, that his good days are behind him. Right. And he's carrying with him, uh, some kind of guilt, some kind of, uh, um, longing for, for the past when things were good. Right. And, and that's hands down right out of noir. Um, mm. and the other thing, Jessica, Jessica is, <laughs> is yeah. The femme fatale. Yeah, yeah, femme fatale pr- done exquisitely well. I will say, watching it again <laughs> right. this time around, which we can get into again a, l- a little later on, um, Clifton, if you want. But yeah, I mean, right. there's a lot, there's a lot there that it does play beautifully with expectations of noir and actually things from noir. And then, and then on top of it, I'll end also on my my uh, speech <laughs> is uh, the setting. I, I I had no idea that the original book was a present day piece. 
Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was one thing I came across. Yeah. That the novel who censored Roger Rabbit was set at the time it was written in 1981. Right. Mm. Not a throwback piece. Yeah, I had no idea. And they were also comic strip characters and not cartoon characters. But I had no idea about that. But man, it like setting it in the 40s is stroke of brilliance to me. Yeah. You know. Now, in this portion, we were introduced to the other major players, the rest of the major players in the movie, which is Judge Doom, played by Christopher mm-hmm. Lloyd, and his henchmen, the Weasels. <laughs> which I was, I was certainly, I mean, it's, Doom's a weird character. Yeah. <laughs> in this, he does seem very super over-the-top villain for you, for you to be following. And so I think, like, I mean, I feel like everyone would be like, oh, it's got to be him, right? Like, there's something wrong with this guy, <laughs> right? Right, right. Because right. <laughs> in the opening scene, like, the first scene we see of him, he murders a shoe. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there's just yeah. that cute little like shoe tune that's trying to be friends with him that he that he executes on the spot. Mm-hmm. And I was like really questioning the uh, the the legal system, <laughs> right? <laughs> in their in the world of this movie and in Toontown that that they allow that to happen. Yeah, there's no. I guess there's no. Um equal protection under the law for tunes yeah, or equal justice for tunes. Yeah. Cause it was just like, Nope, I've decided. I <laughs> know. Oh, I liked, I liked the, the line about they're not kid gloves, Mr. Valiant. Right. Yeah. They're not kid gloves, Mr. Valiant. But this is how we handle things down in Toontown. I'd think you of all people would appreciate that. I like that. That line works really well to explain his character. Yeah. Um, I would, before again, this is one I never would have got because the 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 reference didn't exist. But um, he kind of reminds me if you've ever read or seen the comic Wanted. He kind of reminds me of Mister Rictus. Uh, I only vaguely remember that one. And he's kind of got that wide smile and the weird brimmed hat, and, and okay. he's, he's a take on the Joker. But right, um, that and he's he comes off very. Um, I wonder, like the the vibe I got was kind of. Nazi-ish. Oh, certainly, yeah. Especially yeah, after yeah. like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, that's the one that I can never remember that character. The one with the the how Hitler with the with the the medallion and it burned right, into his right, hand. Right. But yeah. that character was like I got that vibe strongly. I was like, oh my god, is that Belloc? No, Belloc yeah. is the Belloc's the, the Frenchman, the French archaeologist. Yeah, right, right, right. Ha <laughs> son of a. Yeah, that's Belloc. Yeah, Belloc. <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the one, the vibe that I got was like, this is very much, you know, no, the, you know, I'm the, I am, I am the law. I am, you know, I'll do whatever I want to, and no one's going to be able to stop me from the, from him this much. And again, it's always, it's always interesting because obviously again, going back to the future, when I think of, you know, uh, Christopher Lloyd, I've got like, you know, Ignatowski from Taxi or Dr. Brown from Back to the Future or uh his character from Star Trek that I always think of first, I always forget about him as Doom, and I don't know why mm-hmm. that is. But he's great. I mean, he's so good in it. Yeah. Oh, he's <laughs> incredible. You know what was funny? You mm. know what I was thinking as I was watching it? I, I It had been literal decades since I watched it, and I was like, oh my God, Christopher Lloyd is so good in this. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, he's so old. And the thing that, as I was watching it, I was like, the first thing I thought was like, Oh my God! He kind of reminds me of Mister Freeze from Batman the animated mm. series. Yeah, I can see that. Just in like the delivery and the way that he was just like you know sort of without emotion. Yeah, I just mm-hmm. I was just kind of flabbergasted at how good this was. Whereas, where if you transported that character to a different movie and set him as the villain, it would have been like 
I think that he probably would have been like, you know, like a Hans Gruber mm. in the sense that people would have been like, whoa, this guy is scary, but he's playing this like really cold villain in this movie where like they're talking shoes and, you know, they hop <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Right. I just thought it was a, a brilliant bit of acting on his part. Yeah. And it was right after Back to the Future. It's right after Zemeckis, or pretty soon after Zemeckis had worked with him for Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why he brought him into it. And he gets to play a completely different character. For sure. Um, speaking of the weasels, mm-hmm. um, and I've known it, it was one of the things where um, when you're talking about just voice work, that uh, David Lander, does anyone know David Lander's name? No. Mm-hmm. David Lander is uh, Squiggy, if you know your Vernon Shirley. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's one of those, it was one of those great bits. It's like, oh, Squiggy, it's Squiggy's voice again. So he's basically doing, he does the voice of the, of the main, uh, what's the, uh, was it, uh, what's the, what I can't remember the weasel's main, the main weasel's character. Just call him Zoot Suit Weasel. Yeah, exactly. I saw somewhere that said the main one's name was Smartass. There it is. Yeah, you're right. Okay, that's it. <laughs> But yeah, that was which I that, guess isn't addressed in the film, but that's just what they refer to it as. Yeah, but that's that's uh, David Lander, great old David Lander. Our engineer is helping us out with the note and says Arnold Tote, played by uh, Ronald Lacey, was Raiders of the Lost Ark Nazi character. Yeah, Tote doesn't end well for that dude. No, it's, nor should it, but it's, no. it doesn't end well for it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the last scene in this bit that we get to is when he takes Roger to Dolores's bar to hide Mm -hmm. out and they've been handcuffed together. Uh, so he had to do a whole gag of hiding Roger from the, the weasels in his apartment where he keeps them underwater and pretends to wash dishes and Roger has to pop up for air. And that combined with like the scene where he has to saw the, the handcuffs off Mm -hmm. and Roger slips out of them to hold the table steady (laughs) (laughs) and then slips back into them when he asks, like you could have gotten out of this the whole time. Right. And Roger says, well, only when it's funny. Right. Uh, like, I think that really sets up like the level of, of like world building they went into through the interaction. Yeah. And that's a start. We see it throughout the rest of the film too. But just some of those, I remember seeing in the behind the scenes making of like where you'd see like all of the animatronics that they built to simulate the different actions that the mm-hmm. cartoons do to make stuff move. And they use puppeteers and, and like, it's just the amount of, of, technicality that went into it is crazy and right before a show our engineer reminded us of something called um was it swinging the lamp i think yeah or bumping the lamp it's called bumping mm-hmm. the lamp that's kind of become a trope among disney employees that's what they named the ones who were working on the film named it and it's in that scene when he's trying to saw the handcuffs off and they're in this tight like speakeasy hideout in this bar and roger goes to the other side of the room and bumps a swinging lamp and then for a while it's just you know, changing the lighting on the whole room mm-hmm. as it swings back and forth, including on Roger, which is an immense amount of technical mm-hmm. work to change yeah. the lighting on your composite and animated character to match this thing that's just happening in real life. And they did it. And it's just become a, come a thing of like doing the extra work to show you can like, mm-hmm. like a flex more or less. Uh, but that, that, uh, that little trope among Disney came from that scene when they call it the bumping the lip. When I watched this one, um, this time around, I was taking like special note of all the times you saw a cartoon interact with something real, mm-hmm. like on set for, for two, for two things. One, one thing that always stuck with me 
when I watched like a making of Roger Rabbit many, many years ago was, I think it was, it might've been Zemeckis, but, it, or it could have been Spielberg who produced it was basically like, we're shooting like the most elaborate invisible man movie ever. <laughs> right, right? right. And that's what it was like on set right. every day. Um, but the other thing that kind of stuck with me that, that I saw later on was, was the animation directors like kind of insisted on, I want the tunes to interact with as much real stuff as possible. So the audience doesn't think his thought was that the audience might think that they're just like cardboard standups in the background. Mm-hmm. Right. If they didn't move around, if they didn't like move chairs and doors and stuff like that. And that struck me too, watching it this time around. I'm like, it, they, there's always like, like, like a gun floating. They're holding like a real gun right. or, you know, maybe Herman's got a real cigar the whole time. Yeah, it's a real cigar. Yeah. When, when smart ass, the weasel, like, flicks the water mm-hmm. on on eddie in his apartment i was like whoa like i mean <laughs> yeah yeah that blew me away that yeah. really did i was like that's a nice touch that's really really beautiful in the extras that's on you can watch on disney plus now in the extras i think it was a, a like behind the scenes feature at made for probably the dvd release because i did see a copyright on it of 2002 mm. Uh, so I think that's when it came from originally. But there's a quote from Michael Lantieri, who was special effects supervisor on the film. And his quote said, to absolutely make you think that they believe and are walking around with you. The mm. interactivity of the cartoons and the world was like the whole key to making the movie work. And so, yeah, he was pointing out like those things, like flicking the water, like having an animatronic thing to flick the water, to mm. have like a whole animatronic rig controlled to a guy with a rig on his arm motioning a cigar <laughs> yeah. that that animated like baby Herman's cigar in real time. And then they just painted out the rig under it, except for the cigar. I mean, there are times where Roger jumps on the bed and the mattress depresses as mm-hmm. he jumps on the bed, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I saw going back to, to the bar bit in the beginning where, where Jessica does her, like her torch song. Mm-hmm. there's a bit with like where the the there's an octopus that's the bartender right and yeah. they said something like that octopus is on screen maybe like one second mm-hmm. but there was like eight people like eight puppeteers <laughs> right that were doing the practical stuff on set for that and then to, to make it look like he was moving real glasses and and ashtrays and stuff around and i'm like that i mean that floored me yeah what i like about that about that documentary is just the bit where they say the the one uh, animator says is he someone asked him the question well why don't other why isn't other studios doing this if they're capable of doing it and he's like cuz they're lazy <laughs> right cuz it's like twice the work because it's right. at least two or three times as much work to make this work than other people yeah you know than they're just doing it just doing it the way that you know they normally would or try to do it a different way he's like right. it's it's so much more work and you can see from the from what they did uh, that and the, and the part where they're showing the the rubber the rubber figure stand-ins and then, and the idea that when they, there's also very telling when they say the thing about, well, we want to make sure the eye lines line up because right. you can tell in other things when they're trying to do with an animated thing, with an animated character, with the human that they do, they look right through them. Yeah. And it's, and I think so many times of actors complaints now about green screen and like a ball on a stick <laughs> as their right. eye line, yeah. <laughs> you know, and how they don't, you know, in some cases they don't bother to build you know, the monster or the villain or whatever they're doing for the actor to look at. Mm. I think Bob Hoskins in one of the interviews talks about like, if you hold your hand in front of your face, 
Like you can focus on it. If you move your hand away, try focusing on that same spot. Like mm-hmm. your eyes will drift. Like, yeah. like it is a crazy skill that I think he perfected to be able to hold like that eye line on nothing the whole time. Yeah. Like it is crazy. Cause they would, they'd put the puppets in for the blocking and for the rehearsals and then they'd move them and he'd have to keep that eye line the same somehow. It's crazy. I remember another thing he said too, where he was like, he had to be really disciplined with like when he would grab Roger yeah. to keep it closed, to keep his fingers all closed. Right. Because he was like, if I, if I grab it like naturally where your fingers are spaced apart, he's like, I've created more work for the animators now who have to draw Roger in between all my fingers. Right. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's kind of like, I, I don't know how old I was when I heard that. I might've been like 11. Yeah. I was like, Whoa. <laughs> Like that blew me away. Also, the bit about that where they mentioned that they had to take mime. Yeah, mm. <laughs> that was one thing I had just learned from watching that extra. Yeah, just the idea that they had to learn how to mime, and that and that every time you see Bob Hoskins pick up Roger, he feels the sixty pounds of weight. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know that he's having to haul this rabbit around by his ears or his neck or whatever. And you again watching his performance, his part, you know, his performance is of having to do that is is pretty fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I want, I mean, can I talk about Bob Hoskins? Yeah, sure. I, I really love his performance in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think he's terrific in it and didn't quite appreciate it growing up. And, and, and it's weird to say, like I said, I saw this movie when I was five, the first time in the theater. And I remember right. at five, I was like, who's this guy? <laughs> like he's, <laughs> like, he's kind of short and he's bald. Right. And he's right. not thin. And, and like, suffice to say, I mean, like at five, I had, in like like body image expectations put into me <laughs> right in right. the 80s i mean that's kind of amazing to me when i think about it now and but now i'm like what gets me is how sincere he plays it yeah mm-hmm. yeah and and i've heard of some of the other actors that were sort of like in the in the talks or or they tried to get mm-hmm. and i don't know that you would have gotten the sincerity with some of those guys Right. Um, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Cause I saw the same like thing and I don't know. I never know how much stock to put in those like types of rumors where like, Oh, it was going to be this person, but then it was this person, but it's believable. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. yeah, one of the ones I saw was Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. like, yeah, it's totally believable. I'm <laughs> like, I 100% believe they've you know, considered that. Yeah. And he's kind of the one I'm thinking about. I think, I yeah. think, I think it would have been much more of a sarcastic tone. Right. Yeah, he would have done it with a smirk, I yeah. think, at that oh, point. Yeah. At that point in time, especially. Uh, yeah, because we we did get that with uh, Space Jam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly a successor to this. And he just mugged his way through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. through the, whole thing. the thing I love about the Bill Murray one is the fact that because of his weird, you know, basically call my answering machine, ask me if I want to do something, and I'll get back to you if I want to, bit he missed out. Right. Nobody called back. He didn't call back. And then he saw the movie or saw like parts of it in production somehow and was just like, went outside and screamed (laughs) about how stupid he was for not calling back. Right. (laughs) So he might, I mean, he may, I mean, I agree with you at that time, Bill Murray was, you know, at the height of his powers Yeah. and was, you know, ultimately Bill Murray. And, and, you know, he gives a performance here and there at that time of not being Bill Murray. (laughs) And he might have, you know, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if Zemeckis might have been able to wrangle something out of him that wasn't just Bill Murray movie star. 
Right. I mean, we we do later get Bill Murray like like lost in translation. Mm-hmm. Where it's Bill Murray yeah. not trying to do a Bill Murray bit, and and he's great. Yeah, mm-hmm. love Lost in Translation. But I think at that point in time, we would probably still have gotten like the Bill Murray with a smirk. I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. He was definitely yeah. going for laughs a lot yeah. still then, mm-hmm. and I think, and, and that's yeah. kind of the amazing thing to me too, is Bob Hoskins lets the cartoons get laugh. Yeah. In a weird way, like, you know what I mean? Like, he, he's mm-hmm. he's willing to kind of take, um, you know, second billing to that. Right. He understand, I think he understands uh, very well that he's, you know, he's a straight man mm-hmm. in most of these situations. And I think it's even in the documentary they mentioned the fact that, again, I think it's the same animator that talked about the... Um, talked about being, people being lazy he says the thing of like you, you're taught in animation that you don't do anything you can do everything that the camera can't do mm-hmm. and that and then i think that there was the understanding of no a lot of the stuff is going to be visual and you're just part of the gag is always going to be a human playing off or reacting to that and i think bob hoskins got that immediately yeah. and it shows throughout his entire performance right yeah i just don't think it gets said enough i i, th- yeah. I think his performance is really really key and really important to the movie and you know and it's easy to focus on other things, but I think right. he's tremendous. I really do. Yeah. And he manages to still stand out in a world of like over the top mm-hmm. cartoon characters yeah. all around right. him. All right. Moving on to the next portion of the film. Jessica comes to see Eddie in his office to tell him RK Maroon set them both up to get photos so he could blackmail Marvin Acme. And while Eddie is clearly enamored by Jessica, he expresses some skepticism about her claims. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Yeah, well, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Dolores shows up in time to see Eddie with his pants down with Jessica. (laughs) We find out that Dolores has learned it's not maroon who is interested in getting Toontown. It's Cloverleaf Industries that will own Toontown if Acme's will is not found in time. When Eddie and Dolores return to the bar, they find Roger is doing anything but laying low. He is singing and dancing and entertaining and breaking a lot of plates on his head. That, of course, draws the attention of Judge Doom and the Weasel Henchman. This leads to a chase where Eddie and Roger get away with the help of Benny the Cab. Once they get away from the weasels, they hide out in a movie theater where Eddie sees a newsreel that shows R.K. Maroon is selling his studio to Cloverleaf Industries, and that's the connection he was looking for to tie everything together. So, yeah, the fun bits in this one is the the Roger in the bar, I think, had some great <laughs> gags. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benny the Cab is, of course, uh, like a very fun chase scene. Yep. Five-year-old Zach, that was his favorite. The, the Benny the Cab? Benny the Cab. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't five, and I probably, like, Benny's one of my favorite things when I saw the movie when I was younger. Yeah, one of my favorite bits in that is just the, the record skip. Yes. I love to make the pain. Believe me, I'm no strange. I feel so great that I look at me. No pain. 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 And Dolores freaking out about just the dollar signs going on in her head yeah. as he breaks plate after plate after plate. And then Eddie knocks over the entire thing of plates. <laughs> yeah. She's just like, oh, my God, how much money are you costing me? Right. It's, fa- it's just, oh, it's great. It's so good. Yeah. And again, that when they when in the documentary, when they show the rig and how they did that. Right. That there's the, again, like a robot really there just breaking plates. <laughs> yep. As they film. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's like the technical aspects is always mind boggling then and now just mm-hmm. to think about what they pulled off back in 88. Um, some of the other gags uh, in this one that I liked in the scene is the shave and a haircut when yeah. Doom announces his plan that a tune can't resist, you know, responding <laughs> to the knocks of the shave and a haircut. Right. And Bob Hoskins, Eddie Valiant's comment of, I don't know who's tunier, you or Doom. <laughs> Which I, again, I think is a kind of good foreshadowing to, uh-huh. to what we find out later about Doom. But that's, that's what I noticed this time watching. Oh, I did. That was one thing I, I forgot to mention was that when, when Doom writes on the chalkboard. Oh, and squeals. I, yeah. I love the bit with a squeal, but I love even more the bit of taking the poor veterans. Oh, armless, yeah. armless sleeve to wipe out yeah. the other, to wipe out the price of French dip. That is such a heel move. Yeah. And then, and then to write in $5,000. And I looked it up cause I was curious to see how much $5,000 would be in modern money. Mm-hmm. It's about 68 grand. Oh, wow. <laughs> So that makes that scene even more, you know, like the fact that they're willing to protect him right. even more telling, I right. thought. Because yeah. he made him laugh. That's yeah. 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 I don't think the shave and a haircut bit is an exclusively tuned thing. Because it drives me nuts <laughs> when I hear somebody not finish it. Right. You got to finish yeah. it. You got to do those last yeah. bits. You got to do the two bits. Yep. Also, the idea of that the, 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 it's a quick bit, and I don't think I picked on it before, but when Roger refers to his Uncle Thumper. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Taking that was the nice... big pills. I yep. did catch that. This... <laughs> I thought that was a nice bit. The prostate probate. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then they go watch a goofy cartoon. That's mm-hmm. where they hide out at the end after after Benny drops them off. Yeah, I did yeah. remember the bit where, where Roger's enamored with Goofy's performance. Yeah. Right. He's a genius. <laughs> yeah. Love yeah, that. Yeah, I love that. I love that bit. He's like, he's like Lawrence <laughs> Olivier. Like, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. no one like does it like. It. Yeah. yeah, no one does it like Goofy. That guy right. is amazing. He's a genius. Right. Yeah, that's so good. All right, so now we're moving towards the climax of the film, where Eddie's figured out what's happening. He knows at least part of what the score is. So Eddie and Roger go to Maroon Studios to confront R.K. Maroon. While on lookout duty, Roger gets knocked out with a frying pan and thrown into a trunk of a car by Jessica. Maroon starts confessing that he wanted to sell his studio, but Cloverleaf wouldn't buy unless Acme sold too. Before Eddie can find out the whole story, Maroon is shot and killed by an unknown killer. Eddie sees Jessica fleeing the studio and follows her to the edge of Toontown. Eddie prepares to face his fears with the help of some lively tune bullets and goes to Toontown. Jessica saves Eddie's life when Judge Doom tries to shoot him. Doom has been after Toontown the whole time. Jessica and Eddie are captured by Doom and taken to Acme Warehouse. Doom reveals that he is Cloverleaf Industries, and he has a plan to destroy all of Toontown to replace it with a freeway. Eddie comes up with an unexpected way to beat the Toon Weasels. In the conflict, Judge Doom gets run over by a steamroller, but he doesn't die. Holy smoke, he's a Toon! Surprised? Not really. That lame brain freeway idea could only be cooked up by a tune. And not just any tune. Remember me, Eddie? When I killed your brother, I talked. Just wait! Eddie hits Doom with his own dip, and that is the end of Judge Doom. So that's the big climactic fight scene at the end. Um, I did love the like hesitation when he approaches Toontown this time after we've heard about it 
all throughout the film. And, and he got nervous when he was near it earlier. I do like that. Like he really had to take a moment to be like, is this like, is Roger like, is this all really worth it yeah. mm-hmm. to face his past trauma, to go into this place that's caused him so much pain. I did like that bit a lot. You know, what was my favorite bit in the whole movie mm-hmm. was Bob Hoskins character, Eddie, Eddie Valiant. Right. In order to save Jessica and, and, uh, Roger, mm. he basically has to do a tune dance yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. in order to save him. Like <laughs> right. he had to become this thing that he hated. Right. The whole time. <laughs> the whole time. But he understood at that <laughs> point why they did the things that they did. Right. Right. And I thought that that was actually kind of great. Yeah. Well, that's a, there's a bit where Roger says to him early on when he's trying to, they're trying to, you know, they're basically talking sort of, you know, I'm trying to understand each other. Roger says, sometimes laughter is the only weapon we have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and he's like, kind of, kind of foreshadowing the fact that, yeah, that's what you're going to have to do <coughs> in order to beat these guys at their own game, basically. Right. right. The culmination of so many things is that moment. I think Devon, I mean, you nailed it on the head, like what it is. Like he's becoming the thing that, that he hated, but it plays so fair too, because of, because of like the circus background that you get, that you see, which I think is easy to miss in that transition. Right. When he falls asleep yeah. at his desk. I mean, I, I did not give that any weight when I was a kid watching it. And certainly I'm like, mm. oh, there it is. Like, that's explaining, right. that's setting up Act 3 right there. Yeah. Like, you know? And, um, yeah, no, it's just, it, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful moment, I, I think. I agree. And, like, and it also pays off that, like, we had been hearing throughout the movie where they kept warning those weasels, like, stop laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> stop laughing. Because <laughs> one day you're going to die laughing. And again, like, it's one of those things where you shouldn't take it literal, but it's a tune. Mm-hmm. So tunes will take it literal <laughs> because mm-hmm. we've gotten that repeatedly. Like, when way back at the Ink and Paint Club, when he ordered a, a, a bourbon on the rocks. Yeah. And then had to specify, like, I mean ice and still got like still got actual rocks in his drink. Like the tunes are literal. So when they said you will die laughing like your cousins, the hyenas, uh, they were being literal. And, and so, yeah, he was just like, that's how you beat a tune is be a tune. I love the cartoon trope of how when they actually do die, like. <laughs> Their bodies float out. Yeah, right. I, mean, mm-hmm. I mean, their souls float out of their bodies with like the uh, lilies on the top of their yeah. chest. <laughs> oh, man. yeah. And then Toontown, like this, I feel like had the most cameos, all of mm. like back to back to back in the film. You were talking about the Song of the South ones, which I I yeah. had actually missed. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, it's like I totally misremembered this movie. I remember. I- for some reason, I remember there being a lot more cameos inside mm. of the movie. Yeah, me too. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, you kind of just find out, like, towards the very end of the movie, that's when they backload all of the cameos. Yes, yeah. That's where you see, like, Popeye and the uh, the Harvey Toons uh, Jack in the Box. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Droopy. Uh, yeah, and Droopy. Yeah. yeah, that was, like, a big surprise. And, you know, another thing that I was thinking about as I was watching this, you can totally tell the age of the animators who made this movie mm-hmm. because the things that they considered classic, like Popeye and uh, Droopy, right? You know, they they had, they were around, but they really were way past their heydays. Probably right, some right. thirty years outside of the heyday. Yeah. Um, whereas now, looking at it, I, I'm looking and going. 
you know, Scooby Doo would be in there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Yeah. I found, yeah, I found myself mm-hmm. doing that too, Devon. Of like, well, if this was made now, right. what would be? Who would be around? And again, I think if you've seen the the Chippendale mm, Rescue yeah, Rangers, there's exactly. a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The LeBron Space Jam, I think, is a big one too mm. for that. You know, they yeah. had like the Iron Giant and Batman and Superman are in there and. Well, the big difference between the new Space Jam and the Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and I'll say it's connected to that, is that the new Space Jam was 100% Warner's properties, live action and yeah. animated. It's how you get the droogs yeah. from Clockwork Orange, like <laughs> spectating this game somehow. Yeah. Oddly. But very uh, oddly. <laughs> the, the director, and I'm blanking on his name at the moment, but the director of Rescue Rangers specifically made the effort to not be that he wanted to be Roger rabbit. He wanted rescue Rangers to be who frame Roger rabbit. So they went out of their way to make deals happen to get characters from all these different properties from all these different companies uh, Mm. to be able to be in it. And we do get a lot from like our, from our childhood now because Uh, rescue Rangers is for the people that grew up like us. Mm -hmm. It's made by the people who are our age. I'm going to go watch it now. (laughs) <laughs> but say so it's not just it's not just like only disney characters so that is one thing that that rescue rangers uh stood out for me it is very funny i actually did enjoy rescue rangers quite a bit me too as as mm-hmm. one of the modern successors of of roger rabbit definitely inspired by roger rabbit heavily heavily inspired but yeah no i mean i agree devon completely it's just like like i'm I'm looking at i'm like man like minnie's not in there and right. Sylvester <laughs> and yeah, you know? yeah, it's weird though because they had access to all of the Disney characters because it was a Disney film. Yeah, mm-hmm. ultimately, Touchstone possibly, but Disney produced. And then Warner Brothers, I did read Warner Brothers let them like I think they licensed like nineteen or twenty characters to them mm. for cheap, for super cheap, and it was kind of as a favor to Steven Spielberg who produced mm. the film. That's yeah. one of the little factoids I read somewhere. He's probably the only one who could have made this movie at that time. <laughs> right. At that time, yeah. sure. Yeah. And showcases too, like how much of an animation lover he is too. I mean, you know, thinking back to Tiny Toons and Animaniacs and all that stuff and, and you know, everything I've heard from, from the makers of that stuff. Cause you know, like those animators are like my rock stars and mm-hmm. stuff. And all of them are like, no, like it's not Steven just putting his name on that stuff. Like he cared, right. like he was, yeah. he was in meetings with us and he wanted to know like what we were doing and he had ideas and like, he really, mm. really loved that stuff. Okay. Yeah. So is tiny tunes like right after this? Tiny tunes. Yeah. It's yeah. Very, tiny very tunes is like what, two this. years? Yeah. yeah it's probably in development already yeah. by this okay. point. I wasn't sure if maybe one was, one was, you know, because again, Spielberg is, is again, as you said, more, more behind the scenes on this one, but still interested in what's mm-hmm. going on. I wondered if any of that had anything to do with the impetus of Tiny Toons becoming a thing. Oh, yeah, maybe. It probably generated, like, you know, revived some interest in some of these characters or some of this animation. Mm-hmm. Broader than just the kids stuff that we were getting before that. I, I have to get out, too, that when Doom turned into a tune. Mm-hmm. That scared the crap out of me. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch this movie for years after the fact. Like, his eyes fell out of his head. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, like, I, I remember vividly in the back of the Jeep in the cargo spot, because you could do that in the 80s. Uh, right. <laughs> like, me and my cousin were, like, in the, in the, you know, in the, in the back, in the very, very back of the Jeep. And I'm looking out, and we saw it at night. And I'm just looking out at the road. <laughs> right like behind us that we're leaving behind right. and just darkness and darkness. And I'm like, he's out there. 
he's out there. Well, <laughs> like it's like it traumatized me <laughs> with his high pitched voice. Yeah. yeah. Does anybody know if there were like any actual negotiations for like screen time between like Disney and Warner? Because when you actually do have like a, a true crossover, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Right. Daffy and Donald on screen at the same time, they're on the screen at the same time. They get the same amount of time on that screen. Right. Yeah. Same thing with Bugs and and and, and Mickey. Mickey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know, because again, I, I for some reason I remember there being a lot more cameos. Right. But yeah. really, you only got two big crossovers in that whole movie. Yeah. Where it was like you saw two big characters from like you know the different worlds actually interacting. I've always heard there was agreements like you're talking mm-hmm. about, where they were basically the agreement for Warner Brothers would have been because it's a Walt Disney produced film, but the Warner Brothers would have been basically like yeah like mickey and bugs have to be on together at the same time the same amount <laughs> right okay. uh, daffy and and donald same time same amount mm-hmm. uh i've always heard that uh but okay. i couldn't find like the specifics of it when i was researching this time but i have always i've always heard that that was the case yeah and when you watch it that definitely appears to be mm-hmm. the case well it, even down to the ending where it's like uh it ends with like Porky Pig going, that's all folks. And <laughs> yeah. then Tinkerbell comes in at the end mm-hmm. and she gives like the Disney, this is it, you know? <laughs> right. I, I heard something similar where like Warner brothers was a little paranoid that they were going to be outshined or something like that. So they, they mm. had put a stipulation that their guys needed the same screen time as Disney characters. And okay. so, and so, but, but the, the, the one change I heard was that, it was the filmmakers that decide. Well, let's put them in together to to get around to, okay. to make this happen. We'll just put them in scenes together to make it easier. Okay, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, and you did get like a a Dumbo cameo, and right. then you got a Tweety cameo. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah also in the movie. So that yeah, that that does trap. Well, the other thing is that I thought was interesting was the fact that at that point, all you really needed was <laughs> Mel Blanc. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, Mel Blanc would basically be there and do like every voice for Warner Brothers, except for I think June Foray does a couple voices. Yeah, she yep. does. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. she does. So yeah. otherwise, it was no. Nah, so you got Mel. Yeah. Mel's, Mel's. You know, everyone else just you know put your feet up. Mel's going to do about twelve different characters, and we'll go to lunch. <laughs> right. It might have been probably. I, I don't think it was the last time, but it made. But I think it was one of the last times he ever played those characters, though. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he passed away in 1989, about a year after this film came out, uh, if I remember right. Yeah, so just closing out the events of the film. After the big climax, there's still the question of Marvin Acme's will. Eddie sees that the disappearing ink that Marvin Acme hit him with way back at the Ink and Paint Club has reappeared on his shirt Mm -hmm. and finds out it was disappearing, reappearing ink. He tells Roger to read the love poem that he had written for Jessica, and lo and behold, what they thought was a blank piece of paper turns out to be Acme's will, promising to leave Toontown to the tunes upon his death. They all walk off happily into the Toontown sunset, and <laughs> that's all, folks. Mm-hmm. So that's the close of the film. Is Mickey the one that says at the end, um, I wonder who he was talking about Doom? I think so, yes. Mm. Was there, has anyone ever come across anything where they're like, it could have been this character? <laughs> right. Cause we never actually see the tune form. They're like, is no. this a rubber mask? Yeah. Yeah. I, 
that would be interesting to see like if it was if it's like oswald or something like, like <laughs> right, right, right someone someone disgruntled yeah somebody that just hates toontown and really yeah. wants to wipe it off the face of the earth yeah, yeah. it's bosco <laughs> oh wow bosco yeah. it's scrappy dude yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah that was the thing i, I remember like oh wow they kind of you know make you like oh i don't know you know who he, who he is yeah just the idea of what or who uh, Judge Doom actually was is interesting to me. Yeah, that is a funny mystery still out there. I think another like unsung hero for this is like the art director. Mm-hmm. Because again, mm-hmm. a lot of other stuff, there's a lot of stimulus that kind of takes your attention away. Right. This movie, the period aspects of it are really, really good. Yeah. yeah. Like it's a really, really nice looking movie set in the forties. And and like it and that was another thing that hit me watching. I'm like, this movie's so expensive. <laughs> and not even just for the anime. I'm just like looking at the cars and the sets in the right. background. I'm like, mm-hmm. man, that stuff looks all so great. And there's a couple of repeat places like the bar mm-hmm. and, right. and but I mean, but it's a lot of new stuff too. Right. Like like scene to scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I had that, and I also thought like I we hadn't really talked a ton about Jessica and and um again knowing where the movie went, but I kind of a- allowed myself to forget. A bit. And I'm watching that and I'm just like, oh, wow. Like, whether or not she's the culprit, like, is in play. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, she's a real femme fatale yeah. throughout where you're like, you don't know if she's playing everybody. She pretends to be genuine. Is she? And turns mm-hmm. out she is. Yeah. But it's definitely suspect. Because, mm-hmm. like, when she shows up at Eddie's office and, like, is being nice to him and Dolores is like, what were you doing with her? And he's like, she's probably just trying to find a place to stab me in the back. Like, right. he's not buying it even then. Even even as enamored as he is yeah. at that point, right. he's still like, there's something, like, uh, I can't let my guard down. One of the things, uh, just a general thing that stood out to me, is this movie was rated PG. <laughs> hey, stop! Why don't you run downstairs and get me a racing form? Oh! Okay, okay, I'm going. A ladies man, huh? My problem is I got a 50-year-old lust and a 3-year-old dinky. Yeah, must be tough. <laughs> this was a PG film in 1988. Sure. Right. So it was Raiders of the Lost Star. <laughs> <laughs> like, what world were we living in? Because, like, an MCU movie today can't get anything lower than a PG-13 rating. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any ever has. And, like, this was so risque yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, like innuendos flying left and right uh that i certainly did not get when i was younger that's certainly what i was alluding to uh not getting when i was younger um it is a very horny movie it really <laughs> like, is just, just to say it matter of factly like, i have no doubt that this movie probably was one of the catalysts for the pg-13 rating <laughs> because the there was just nothing in the middle at that point. Right. It was like it was either PG or R. Right. Yeah. Or they said, or they certainly maybe the cartoons maybe was animated and fooled them. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, it's got to be PG. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I keep my thing about this that that I, again I was thinking about was it's probably just because of the proximity of um, my family and I went on on the Disney Wish and went to the park. Okay. In uh, recently, and I'm always amazed that there's not. I know it's an older movie. Obviously, we're celebrating the the anniversary and all, but I still am surprised as, as you know, I'll say it, revolutionary as this movie is, right. it was, 
that there isn't more love shown to it. And it might just mm. be because of the fact that it's so uh, risque <laughs> to, <laughs> right. put it, to put it mildly. Yeah. Like there's certainly, there's definitely certainly factors at play where people you know, would look at it differently and more critically now. I think, mm-hmm. and, I mean, yeah. where they're kind of afraid probably. I think it's becoming in a weird way, a little forgotten, which is funny because I do think that this movie did have a certain stature. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like through the, those 35 years. And I think now mm. it's, it's becoming a little like, Oh yeah, that movie, cause it doesn't pop up in places no. uh, often. Um, but you know, I remember like, you know, going back and reading like Ebert reviews and stuff like he gave, it's a four star movie to him. Right. You know, like, I mean, this one was, you know, held in pretty high, high esteem for a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And they certainly used to, uh, really hold it up as like an example uh like they used to show it off a lot because my family went to disney world florida in 1990 so just Mm -hmm. two years a year and a half after or two years after this came out and we went to the mgm studios in florida that they had as part of the disney world complex right and i mean it's roger rabbit everywhere and like we toured the florida animation studio that existed at the time that closed in the early 2000s and like i mean it was like showing off everything about the production of Roger Rabbit. Um, hmm. The cars all over the MGM lot, like the Roger Rabbit cars. Dick Tracy was big at the time too. Uh, <laughs> so that was also all around. But I remember Roger Rabbit, especially being in the animated in like the animation showcase portions of the MGM studio at the time. Uh, okay. And I like you, you called out the, um, the art director, mm. Zach. And I'd like to, I mentioned the top of the show because the movie's directed by Robert Zemeckis. I like to say Robert Zemeckis with Richard Williams mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because Richard Williams was the animation director. So he was the one who brought all the rest of it to life and directed the, you know, the performances yeah. mm-hmm. of all of the characters. Like, like Robert Zemeckis obviously told him what he was after. And then Richard Williams went and did it. And Richard Williams is a very accomplished uh, animator uh, himself. Uh, he since passed away. I think he just passed away in 2019, but he did a book a little more than 20 years ago called the animators survival kit. Mm. Uh, it's really quite good. If you just want to learn like the, the principles of animation, it was a great like animation textbook that, that I read when I was in college and still have a copy of and nice. recommend to anybody who just wants to see some of the, the workings of animation from, you know, the, the fundamentals on up. Yeah. It's a very good book by him. And the thing I didn't know too, until researching it for, for the podcast, it was, um, the song they sing at the end, which starts with like the cart with the well, all the tunes singing and everything, and then you kind of hear like like everybody starts chiming in. Like mm-hmm. that's the crew, that's the animation okay. crew singing as sort of like a thank you, like like okay, like here it is, like here they are, they have a moment too. Um, I got a little choked up hearing that. I think, yeah. you know, those guys, uh, those guys are a little, little faceless sometimes. And a lot of times, yeah, you know, and they do magic. Yeah. They slaved <laughs> over this for years yeah. and years. Cause there was one quote again from the extra, from the, the behind the scenes feature at on Disney plus extras that, uh, Richard Williams is relating what Ken Ralston had said to him, another crew member. And Ken Ralston said, it's two years away and I'm terrified right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's talking about their deadline. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Richard Williams saying me too. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was a ton of work. 
I heard something that every once in a while they would somebody would just run into the hallway, you know, in the animation studios and just go, draw faster. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah was, that was Richard Williams. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Just some trivia again. The the movie did very well when it came out. It earned 157 million in the US and 350 million worldwide on a 70 million dollar budget. It was the number one or number two film for the year of 1988, depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It made the most money in the calendar year of 1988, but Mm -hmm. Rain Man, which was released at the tail end of 1988, ultimately went on to make slightly more money, most of it accumulated in 1989. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was nominated for six Oscars, uh, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Visual Effects. Best Film Editing, and it won three, the Best Mm. Sound Effects Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Film Editing. And Animation Director Richard Williams also received a Special Achievement Award from the Academy for Animation Direction and the Creation of Cartoon Characters. So they basically made a special award just for him for his achievement in this film and in the other awards. That's cool. So that was one thing. Uh, Just another little piece of trivia i never did find a solid explanation for why kathleen turner went uncredited uh, (laughs) as jessica rabbit uh in various interviews she had implied at times that she just did it did the role for fun or as a favor to filmmakers and in a 2017 interview she said she was pregnant at the time and just had to go in and only do her voice (laughs) so i don't know if if she was kind of saying implying that you know she didn't see it as that big a role or that it was created by other people more than her mm. which is kind of the the james earl jones explanation for darth vader yeah. <laughs> and, um, so that's all i got but no solid explanation as to why she's uncredited mm. and then the singing voice uh of jessica rabbit in her ink and paint club number was amy irving who was uh, married to steven uh, spielberg wow. at the time yeah. okay okay <laughs> had not heard that that's cool so any other final thoughts on the film? I wish Tom and Jerry were in it. <laughs> yeah, Tom and Jerry should have been in yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know why, but I seem to remember that they did try and get Tom and Jerry in it, but for some reason they couldn't work out a deal. Okay. That's what I was gonna I was just gonna ask you that, Devon. I thought like at this point in eighty eight, I mean, Turner slash Warner would have had the MGM characters by this point, right? Because mm-hmm. you get droopy. Right. Yeah. You know, and it is yeah, I mean that's the puzzling thing to me thinking now, like, wow, why wouldn't they just get Tom and Jerry at this yeah. point, you know, and, and, uh, who, who, who are the big stars of MGM really. Right. Their influence is definitely felt in the movie. I think there's a, yes. a lot of the gags are very Tom and Jerry gags. Well, the opening mm-hmm. bit with the, with mother, mother not being seen, right. only seen from like the waist down yeah. is very, yeah. is very Tom and Jerry. Oh yeah, and that there was the uh, quote I wanted to to read and get in before we before we wrap up, and it was from Robert Zemeckis, the director, who said, "Well, I always thought when I read the script that there was a specific style and type of animation that the film should have. I mean, the best technique was always done by Disney, and the most interesting mm-hmm. characters were done at Warner Brothers. And right. Tex Avery always, in my opinion, did the funniest humor." Right. That's what I wanted in the characters, the combination of those three. And, and I think in that regard, like, I think he was a success. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think he did that very well. Now for the final thing, the final, uh, before we close out, 
I'm just going to go around and say uh, yay or nay on the film. We had all seen it before. Uh, we all watched it again. <laughs> Did it hold up? We'll start with Zach. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's cartoons and noir. I mean, <laughs> right. this is this has got like this is this movie's made for me. Right, it's made just <laughs> for Zach, really. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's missing Batman, but that's it. I mean, like <laughs> Frank. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I, it was one of the things where I, I had that moment of like, I don't know. I don't want to come on the. I really don't want to be the downer on the podcast and be like, oh, I didn't like it. But no, I loved it. I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it more than I remembered. Actually, I thought okay. maybe it was just being on this side of things. Right. In my life, I'm like, no, I I like this a whole lot. So yeah, it, it definitely holds up. Okay. And Devon, I really did like it. I did not expect to like it as much as I did. Okay. Um, it was. Very hard sell in a lot of places. <laughs> right. Like you could just feel the love coming from from everyone involved, um, from the script to animators to actors. You could really tell that it was a labor of love being done, and um, it absolutely held up uh, because it was a lot better than I remembered it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do too. I mean. I've- like I'm just seeing more and more of like the the technical achievement that it was this time, but I'm also appreciating, you know, different aspects of it. There's some things where I mean it's it, it is just a product of like 1988 filmmaking was a little different. They were a little constrained in what they could do, so it doesn't quite like flow as smoothly. I think as as you know some kind of mo- more modern movies do to me, mm-hmm. but like the heart's there and it's amazing when you see like what the, like what they achieved at that time. And just the, the technology that they had to make up as they went to make it happen. Mm. It's a great point. uh, Is mine. It like blows my mind because Robert Zemeckis went into it where he was like, how do I shoot this thing? Well, I'm just going to shoot it. Like I shoot back to the future. Mm-hmm. And and Richard Williams and the and uh, Lantieri, the special effects people were like, "Do it and like we'll figure it out. Like you do what you do, and we'll make it work." And yeah. and it's it's I mean a phenomenal achievement. I don't want a sequel. No, it comes up. It <laughs> okay. periodically comes up every once in a while. Like they're gonna do a sequel. They're gonna do a sequel. Right. I don't do it. Don't touch it. Um, but. You know, I will say the only the only person that I would trust would be uh, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> He's the yeah. only one I would trust. He's the only one that I think has the sensibility, like the love of like that guy's a cartoon guy, and that guy's a noir guy, and that guy's a that guy's like an old timey like like Martin Scorsese like film scholar guy. Like you know what I mean? I think he's the only guy that 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 has all the hats, has all the tools for it. I want the Coens to redo it. <laughs> I was thinking about it today. I thought, well, who would I have do it? And I'm like, the Coens. The Coens are the ones I would do it. <laughs> they would. They would. They would get the 40 stuff right. Could you imagine? You know, like Miller's Crossing, but with <laughs> tunes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm all for that. <laughs> so that wraps up our look back 35 long years ago to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Feel free to let us know your thoughts on the movie and anything you think we might have missed. You can check out all of our past episodes at our website, letmeknowhowitis.com, as well as anywhere you find podcasts. 
Just please, if you enjoy the show and feel so inclined, give us a like or follow and leave a review. It really helps us out. Finally, if you would like to suggest a topic, send it our way by email at info at letmenowhowitis.com. You can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is our show's initials, L-M-K-H-I-I. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening.